You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Exodus chapter 4. The last couple of weeks we have been looking at Moses' conversation with God at the burning bush, and we saw two weeks ago how um, God communicates with Moses, uh, basically uh, his plan for how he's going to rescue the people of Israel. He's heard them. Uh, He's acknowledging the fact that they're suffering. He's acknowledging the fact that they need rescue. He's going to use Moses to bring about that rescue. And we said, really, the conversation should have stopped there, and Moses should have responded and left and gone and done what God had called him to do. And yet, Moses responds, and so we saw that last week, how Moses responds with uh, questions and concerns. Uh, We saw from a summary sentence last week that God calls each of us to serve him with an expectation that his presence qualifies us and his promises equip us with all we need to communicate the message of hope that God cares and he is coming. And so we can trust that whatever God calls us to do, we are qualified to do that because he goes with us. So his presence qualifies us to do whatever mission, whatever task he gives us to do, we go do it because he goes with us. And we go with a message of hope because he's given us promises that we can bank on. He's given us promises to communicate to others, promises that he cares, that he works good, and that he's coming to rescue his people. And so uh, we saw last week God patiently, graciously responding to those concerns that are uh, raised by Moses. Uh, But as we'll see today, he continues with more excuses and more reasons for not doing what God has called him to do. So let's look at Exodus chapter 4, we'll start reading in verse 1 to see what excuses Moses has this week. It says, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, It was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even those two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. 
He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you do the signs. Our summary sentence for today, God made us so he is able to use the abilities and inabilities he has given us to accomplish the tasks he has assigned us. Making our greatest challenge not the success of the tasks, but our trust in his ability to succeed through us. God made us so he is able to use the abilities and inabilities he has given us to accomplish the tasks he has assigned us. Making our greatest challenge not the success of the tasks, but our trust in his ability to succeed through us. For our kids, because God made us, he is able to use us however he wants. What we're seeing here is that as Moses continues to raise excuses, God has answers for each one of those excuses, right? And each one of those excuses is rooted in bringing Moses back to a deeper understanding of himself, right? And so by the end of this, what we should really see through this conversation is that God has planned Moses to accomplish certain tasks. He's enabled him and he's disabled him in some ways, right? So he's enabled Moses to be able to go and do this, but he's also kept Moses uh, hindered in being able to get all the glory for it. So he's enabled him, but also disabled him so that God receives the glory for it. Um, and so it's, it's laid out for him. Here's the task. Here's what's going to be done. I'm going to receive the glory for it. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you think you're qualified or not, because I'm going with you. Uh, and so really it boils down to not whether the task uh, is something that Moses will find success in, like, that, that's not what seems to be at stake. What's really at stake here is, will Moses believe God that God will find success through him, right? It's not about whether Moses can be successful in the task. God's already said that it'll happen. What's really at stake, the challenge that's really being faced here is, will Moses believe God about it? Will Moses believe God about what he has told him? Will he believe, will he buy into this idea that it doesn't matter whether I think I have the abilities or not to do what God's called me to. He says that I do. Will I trust him in that? Will I follow him in obedience to that? So we're going to jump right in this morning and see these three final excuses that Moses gives uh, in response to what God, God has called him to do. Number one, we need to rest in the results of God. We need to rest in the results of God. Moses' third excuse here is tied to a lack of success. What if no one listens to me, right? What if no one listens and responds? He says, they're not going to listen well to this. What if they don't listen to me? What if, what if I go and I try to be obedient to you and, and nobody, nobody agrees? Nobody thinks that I've come from you. Nobody listens to the message. What if nobody listens well to what I come saying? It's important for us to see and, and, and understand that God had already communicated to Moses that success was going to happen, right? God has already assured us of the success of his mission and the growth of his kingdom. Moses has these fears that no one's going to listen to him, that no one's going to believe that God appeared to him. And it's probably, if you think about it, rooted in his last experience with the people of Israel, right? So we, we rewind back to when, you know, Moses was in, uh, in Israel, not Israel, Egypt, 40 years prior, right? So before he flees, 40 years prior, he's in Egypt He's 40 years old. He says, I'm going to leave the children of Israel out of this. He goes to the children of Israel, and what do they do? They reject him. They say, who made you lord and judge over us? Who made you our prince? 
right? And so he then flees because the Pharaoh wants to kill him after that murder. And so he's probably got concerns rooted in the fact that he's already tried to do this once and he was rejected. Why would it not be the same thing again? The problem is that he's denying divine revelation. God had already told him that the elders would listen to him. Therefore, Moses lacks the necessary confidence because he's not believing in God. So rewind back into chapter 3, verse 12. Remember, Moses says, I don't don't know that I can do this because I'm not qualified to do it. God says, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Right? This is going to be successful. You are going to find victory. You go down to verse 18. And they will listen to your voice. You and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. He's already assured Moses that they're going to listen. He's already assured Moses that there is going to be victory and success in this mission. But Moses is denying this this divine revelation that God has communicated to him. He's doubting and thus rejecting God's promises about the issue. Now let's think about how this ties in with us, right? Like we've been called and commanded to spread God's word to others. We've been commanded to, to tell others about Christ, the gospel, the resurrection. We're to communicate this message. And every one of us stops and pauses with the same type of excuses, right? We, we all do this just like Moses. We hesitate and we say, well, who am I? I don't really have the, the capabilities of being able to do that. And, and I don't know enough, right? Moses says, I don't know your name, God. Like, how am I even to communicate to people who you are? I don't know you. We do the same thing. We say, you know what? There's going to be questions that come up. I'm not going to be able to answer those, so I'm not going to even start the conversation. But even as we kind of work through and process those excuses, we, we most oftentimes come around to this third excuse that even if I start a conversation with a coworker or a neighbor or a family member, they're not going to listen to me, right? Like they're, they're not going to hear me. They're going to reject this message. They're going to doubt me. They're going to doubt the word. They're, they're not going to listen, right? And it, and it falls back on us, too, to believe the divine revelation that God has said his message will bring forth fruit, right? That his word will not return void. We, we see in the New Testament, and we look to the, the future, and we see, even into the book of Revelation, how big his kingdom becomes, right? It's Jews and Gentiles alike that are worshiping there at the end. It's people from every tribe, nation, and tongue that are worshiping him. So we don't have to wonder and worry, should I go and should I share, Whether it's locally or globally, internationally, we don't have to wonder and worry, will this message spring forth fruit? Will this message be impactful? Will people respond to the message of the gospel? The answer is yes, they will. God has promised that they will. He has promised that his mission will be successful, that his kingdom will grow. And we have to be careful that we don't deny that divine revelation, denying what God has already told us to be true. Moses is doubting and rejecting God's promise about the issue. And I I was asking myself this morning as I was putting our our final notes together, how often do I do this? How often do I deny and reject the very promises that God has given to me? Not just about the effectiveness of the gospel message, but any promise in Scripture that speaks to a situation that I'm living in, how often do I question and doubt the validity of that promise? 
right? We're all tempted when we're going through trials and difficulties and challenges to question the goodness of God, right? We question, you know, where is God in this? Is God being effective in this? Is he doing something here? Like, and it comes back to, do I believe what scripture promises that yes, absolutely he's in it. Absolutely he is working. Absolutely he is sovereign and pro- his providence is at work behind the scenes. Just like with Moses and Israelites who would have said, God has not heard our cries. We're crying for deliverance and we don't see him anywhere. We know God's working behind the scenes. Moses is being born. Moses is being preserved through the Nile River. Moses is being prepared in the wilderness to be the deliverer. All these things are working behind the scenes. And yet Israel continues to cry in Egypt, God, send us a savior. Send us a savior. Send us a savior. All the while, the promise still rings true. After 400 years, the Savior's coming. Right? He told Abraham, 400 years, then the people are coming out. Nothing has changed. And yet everybody's wondering and doubting, is God here and is God working? We have to be careful ourselves that we don't deny clear divine revelation that's been given to us in God's word. That his mission will be successful, that God is always working good in our situations. I put in my notes, our effectiveness in serving God is always tied to our willingness to believe what God says in his word. Our effectiveness in serving God is always tied to our willingness to believe what God says in his word. Moses has not yet understood that God is the one who makes converts. God is the one who changes hearts. God is the one who controls hearts. Here's what's Moses' responsibility in this. And it goes back to what we were saying in our summary sentence. The success isn't tied, the, the challenge isn't whether the task will be successful or not. The challenge is whether Moses believes that God will be successful through him. Moses' responsibility is to deliver the message and to trust that God will make the message effective. Moses has one responsibility here. Go tell the people what's happening. Go tell Pharaoh what's happening. It's not Moses' job to change Pharaoh's heart. It's not Moses' job to make the people listen. One commentator said Moses wasn't called to be an orator. He was called to be a reporter, right? He's not called to be eloquent in speech. He's not called to, to be this great communicator. He's just simply called to go and report what God has told to him. The same is true for us. God had already spoken to this excuse by Moses. He had already communicated that the mission would be successful. Number two, God has provided ample proof for the validation of his message and the call to his kingdom. God has provided ample proof for the validation of his message and the call to his kingdom. People need signs sometimes to believe the message of God. And we're no different. Oftentimes we want proof, we want evidence. Show me that what God has said is really true. And so Moses says, the people aren't going to listen. What if, they don't, what if they don't hear me? What if they don't respond to what I have to say to them? God responds, not simply by reiterating, Moses, I've already told you this. I've already told you the people are going to listen. I already told you the elders are going to respond. He doesn't go back that route. Instead, he goes to proofs of his power. He says, what's in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. He says, 
I've done this so that they'll believe you, that they'll believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And then God graciously goes on and gives him more signs, right? He says, stick your hand in your coat, bring it out. It's got leprosy on it. Put it back in, it comes out, it's completely restored. He talks about pouring out, if he needs to, we'll resort to pouring out water so they can see it turn into blood. What's going on here? It's kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird setup. It's like, how does this prove anything about God if you show up and start doing like these magician type tricks? Like, like what, what, how does this tie into the deliverance from Egypt? How does this tie into God being in control and God being the one they should respond to? Um, I think it's important for us to see the elements that are mentioned here uh, that tie in with the signs that are being done. The signs that are done here are for Moses to validate the message that he brings. It's to communicate God's power and how it reinforces the promises that have already been given. There's three elements here that are talked about. This snake, this concept of leprosy, and the Nile River. I think it makes sense if we see how common all three of those elements were in the Egyptian culture, right? So the snake, uh, if you've ever seen any type of uh, old Egyptian artifacts uh, or or maybe even watched movies uh, that focus on Egyptian culture, you'll notice pretty quickly that the serpent, the cobra, the snake is pretty prevalent in their architecture. Uh, The snake would have represented uh, their gods, even other gods that were depicted as different animals or different types of physical manifestations. Oftentimes they held scepters that were shaped like a snake. Um, Even like pharaohs had uh, like crowns and helmets that would have had the serpent on the front, the snake, the cobra, um, was kind of the, the dominant picture, the dominant theme in Egypt. It's also because cobras were common in that area, right? So they, they would have been very familiar with snakes, and there would have been a healthy fear of those snakes too, whether it was a healthy fear in regards to their religion, right? So Hebrew and Egyptian would have had a concept that the snake represents the deities that are worshipped in Egypt, but then also just the the normal everyday type of safety. If you see a cobra, you stay away from it, right? Like you're not going near that type of poisonous snake. Leprosy was also a common disease in their culture, right? The Egyptians were known kind of for their um, unhealthiness, and so it, it lent itself towards the leprosy disease. And so they would have had leper colonies. We see leprosy pretty common in the New Testament when Jesus is doing his healings. Would have been common in the Egyptian culture too, It would have been seen as that disease, just like in the New Testament, that was incurable. It was a death sentence, like nobody can overcome leprosy. And then you're probably all familiar with the Nile River and how significant and important it is to Egyptian life and culture. It's what sustained them, right? In an area where there would have been very little rainfall, the the Nile River is their sustenance for life. It provides for them, which is why it was such a, a hit to them when God turns it into blood. Because this is our source of life. This is our source of water. This is where we get everything from. And so those three elements are super significant for the Egyptians and the Hebrews. As, as, as Moses is anticipating going, right, and sharing this message, God says, we're going to show them the power that I have over everything that's common to them. Things that would create fear, <coughs> things that create reliance in their culture, I'm sovereign and in control of all three of those things, right? So the first sign that's done here is God's power over creation. It's God's power over creation, and he shows that through turning Moses' staff into the serpent, into the snake. 
His authority is on display in that he is sovereign over evil. He's sovereign over Satan, who's often depicted as the snake. He's sovereign over the gods of Egypt, depicted by the snake. And he's sovereign over Pharaoh, who would have had the cobra right there on his head. Right? God wants to communicate that he is greater than the greatest power that the people know at that time. God calls out to Moses after he turns it into a snake and tells him to pick it up by the tail, which would have required a great bit of faith on the, on the part of Moses. One, he's like us, seemingly. He's pretty scared of snakes, right? As soon as it turns into a snake, the Bible says he runs away from it and hides, right? He wants no part of the cobra. Um, he's called out of the rocks or, or the bushes or wherever he's hiding, and, and he's like, Moses, come on out. Like, you're going to pick that snake up, and you're going to pick it up by the tail, which most of us know is like the worst way to pick up a snake, Right? Um, you tell people if they're going to handle snakes, like the first thing you tell people is probably don't handle snakes, right? Like I try to tell my boys, like we just don't handle snakes, but they're, they're okay with it. They love it. They, they, they enjoy grabbing creatures and whatnot. And so I've told them like, if you're going to grab a snake, you've got to grab it near the back of its head, right? Because what you do then is you disable its ability to turn around and bite you. You pick it up by the tail and it's got enough muscle where it's going to come up and, and snap at you, right? And so for, for God to tell him to snatch it by the tail would have required great faith on Moses' part because he's putting himself in a vulnerable situation. One, grabbing a snake. Two, grabbing it by the tail. He's vulnerable here. But as soon as he does it, God changes it back into a staff. Now, it's probably significant to see that the word that's used in the original language, God tells him to grab it firmly, to, to grab it confidently by the tail, and the word in the original language for how Moses grabs it is that he grabs it tentatively and cautiously. So even as he expresses faith, there's still a lack of faith and distrust in comparison to what God's calling him to. But does, he does respond. He does grab the snake. He does pick it up as he's commanded to. Here we have God establishing that staff of Moses now as an indicator of God's presence with him. Think about how that staff's going to be used moving forward. It's going to bring about the plagues in Egypt. Just about every one of them, there's a mention of Moses using that staff and spreading it out and, and using it to bring about plagues upon Egypt. It's, it's used to split the Red Sea. It's used to bring water from the rock in the wilderness once the people have left Egypt. Now, I think it's significant to note here that this staff doesn't become a magic wand that um, Moses can just use however he wants to, right? Like, that's not what the staff becomes here, um, it, it wouldn't make for a great uh, Indiana Jones movie for them to go find the staff of Moses as though it would give powers because it doesn't bring powers in and of itself, right? It, it's completely tied to God using his power, using the staff when he directly communicates to Moses to use it in such a way, right? So it's not a, it's not a magic wand that Moses is able to use, but it does become an, uh, a physical manifestation of God's presence being with Moses. But I think there's a significant lesson for Moses that he needs to hear through the staff even, and that is that God can use something ordinary to show his power for extraordinary purposes, right? He can use something ordinary for extraordinary purposes, which is really what's at stake in Moses's mind. I'm ordinary. I don't think you can use me. And God says, I can use the stick that's in your hand if I want to. I can use an ordinary staff <clears throat> that you probably found in the mountain, in the, in the brush. You, you pulled that thing out and you've been using it to help you take care of sheep. I can use what's ordinary for extraordinary purposes. That second sign, God's power over people through that leprous hand. He shows that he has authority over plagues, 
that he's sovereign over the plagues that are going to come, both sickness and death, answer to God, answer to the I am of the burning bush. That sign number three is God's power over the elements. The bloody Nile water that he can call upon if need be shows his authority over life. The most important element of success in Egypt is under God's control. These are the signs that God has given to Moses. He says, hey, if you're worried about your message not being heard, you've got signs. You've got signs that you can show the people. Now, what good does that do to us today? Like, none of us have the authority to do those things, right? Like, we're not going to carry a staff around to work this week, and when we try to share the gospel with a friend, throw it down and expect it to turn into a cobra, right? Like, that's not, that's not what's been given to us. What we see Jesus communicate in the New Testament, though, is that we do have a sign, right? God has given us a superior sign to take with us to validate his message, and it's the sign of the empty tomb. That comes from Matthew chapter 12, right? He says it's an evil generation that desires a sign, right? But there is a sign that's provided, Jesus says, and it's the sign of Jonah. And he goes on to explain what he means by that, that that he is going to spend three days in the grave, and he's going to come out three days later. Just as Jonah came out of the belly of the well, Jesus is coming out of the tomb, and it's empty, right? And it's empty, and that's our sign. And you go read through the book of Acts, and you'll see that the, the message that, the, that Peter and the disciples and the apostles continue to bring time and time again as they're, brought before, um, as they're brought before councils and governments and told to be quiet, the message that they're told to stop is the message of the resurrection. That's the sign that we're to communicate to other people. Uh, it's the proof of our faith. Right? Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. If there is no resurrection, then our faith is futile, and we of all people should be pitied the most if Jesus is still dead in the grave. Now, that's why I think it's so important for you to have an active, fluid understanding of why we believe the resurrection. We were talking about this in our Discipleship Day at Trinity this week, how important the resurrection is for our students to grasp, not just the concept that Jesus is back from the dead, but why we believe it, why we believe it, right? And Brody was down from Snowbird, and he was talking about how our belief in the resurrection is different than people who believe in Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster, right? Like, you think about who typically believes in that and where the eyewitness accounts come from, right? There's not a, there's not a, a long list of credible people that typically show up on Bigfoot specials that you're like, now, that's the type of person that I typically believe, right? Like, it's usually people that you're like, I mean, that's all we could find. Like, this person claims to have seen Bigfoot. Like, where's, like, the, the reliable witnesses, right? Where's the eyewitness accounts? Where, where, give me somebody who, who can say, I saw it with 10 other people or 15 other people, right? But we read in the New Testament that, that Jesus' resurrection, that the empty tomb was seen, and he himself was bodily seen, time and time again, by multiple witnesses. 500 people at one time seeing him back from the dead. 500 people at one time. Let's say that you were absent this week and you didn't come to church and you were the only one that wasn't here, right? And you asked somebody, hey, how, uh, how was church on Sunday? And you were like, man, it was crazy. Like uh, Tim Tebow showed up and preached the sermon today. Adam couldn't be there. He was sick, and, and I guess he's friends with Tim Tebow, and he called Tim Tebow, and Tim Tebow came and preached on, at church on Sunday. And it was awesome, and you're like, what? Like, no. Like, that didn't happen. 
And you're like, no, it did. Like, ask anybody in our church. And you start calling and asking around, and people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, yeah, but maybe y'all like, are all in on it. Right? Like, maybe y'all all just agreed to like, pull a joke on me. And so you come back next week, and you come back next week, and everybody has like Tim Tebow jerseys on, and everybody has like autographed, signed books by him. At that point, you start to think, like, man, like maybe he did. Maybe he did come and preach on a Sunday. And, and there's far less than 500 people here today. Right, But on the account of this many witnesses, plus the fact that these people are, you, you are now clothed in Tim Tebow gear, you're going to start to think like, man, I picked the wrong Sunday to be gone. Right? Like we had a famous football player here preaching a sermon. How cool would that have been to be here? It wasn't just Adam, it was somebody totally different preaching. 500 witnesses saw Jesus back from the dead. And those 500 witnesses were clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and their lives were completely different moving forward to where you couldn't really deny the resurrection. People tried to. They tried to stop the message. And if it had been stoppable, the Pharisees would have found a way to stop it, right? But the tomb was empty. You couldn't, you couldn't bring people and parade them through and show them, here's where Jesus was buried and here's his body. Stop believing in the resurrection because the tomb really was empty. And you couldn't hope that people were just going to stop talking about it because the message just kept spreading because people believed the eyewitnesses. They believed that what they were hearing was really true. That's the sign that's been given to us, right? So, so you're talking to somebody in, in your family, you're talking to a neighbor, a coworker, and you're trying to communicate the gospel, and they're like, I just don't know if I believe that. We always come back to the empty tomb. Then, then what do you believe about the tomb of Jesus? Because it's empty, and he claimed to be back from the dead. And if he's back from the dead, it changes everything. We have, a, we have a much greater sign than what Moses had to validate his message. So just as Moses had promises that the mission would be successful, he had signs to back it up. We have the exact same thing today. Whatever we're called to by God, whatever tasks we are given, we are assured that they will be successful. And that we have signs to prove in that success that Jesus is back from the dead. Number two. We accept our abilities from God. So Moses is like, all right, fine, that's great. Like, you're not going to go with that excuse, then I've got to come up with another one. And he comes up with another one. He says in verse 10, But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Excuse number four falls on a lack of capability. Moses says, what if I just can't do it? What if they don't listen well? God says, they're going to listen. But what if I can't speak very well? Like, what if I can't communicate it well? I'm not a good communicator. What if I can't do it? What if I can't do what you've called me to do. Number one, God's sovereignty extends to the exact specifications of your existence. God's sovereignty extends to the exact specifications of your existence. Moses claims he's not able to carry out the task due to his inability to speak well. He won't be eloquent enough to convince the people. We don't know exactly what he's referring to here. He could be totally making something up. Right? Or there could be something really at stake here where he's not a good communicator. Right? Um, he could be fearful of public speaking. He, he could have just been terrified of the idea of having to stand up in front of a public setting and speak on behalf of God. 
He may have had a speech impediment where he stuttered. Maybe he was worried about the language that he had forgotten. You know, it's been 40 years since he was in Egypt. He would have been fluent probably in Hebrew and Egyptian at that time. He's been, he's been away from that area for 40 years. You may know of missionaries who have come off the field who are fluent in a language, and they start to lose it the longer they're away from that culture. When they're not using it, they, they kind of lose that. Maybe, maybe he's concerned about his ability to go back and communicate well because he hasn't used those languages uh, often. Whatever the, whatever the reason is, whatever the excuse is, God kind of supersedes that by saying that, that he can use Moses regardless of the inability that Moses feels like he has. And God has certainly shown that, that he can do that in other settings as well. He can use less than stellar speakers to get the message across. We see this, uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians with Paul. Paul would have said, similar things, and yet he responded in obedience and did still what God called him to do. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul would say, hey, God chose me because I'm not a great speaker, so that he would receive the glory of the message, right? Paul says, I, I fit into this category like Moses. I'm not a very good speaker. Second Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 10, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. They're talking about Paul. Let us such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we uh, do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Paul says, uh, or these people are saying, like, his speech, it's really not that great. Like, what he comes proclaiming, it's not, it's not eloquent. It's not special. Chapter 11, verse 6, Paul says, Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Paul's self-aware that he's not a great speaker, which shows even more God's power that he was able to use someone like Paul to radically change the early church. It's interesting that Moses says he's not a good enough speaker, and yet he's dialoguing with the I am here, right? Like he's arguing with the I am, but he says, hey, I can't go talk to, to the Hebrews. I can't go argue with the Hebrews. I can't go argue with Pharaoh, but I can argue with a burning bush, right? Like I'm eloquent and and, and my speech enough to do that. Moses makes two passive aggressive claims here. So let's go back to Exodus. He makes two passive aggressive claims here that really fall back on him blaming God for how he feels. Look what he says. Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. Two passive aggressive claims about his inability to carry out God's commands by blaming God for his can't. He blames God for his can't. I can't do this and it's your fault. How does he do that? Well, first of all, he says, I don't like the way you made me. I've been this way since you made me, right? He says, I'm not eloquent in the past, meaning like my whole life I've not been, I've been, I've not been a good speaker. Like I've never been a good speaker. You've made me this way and I'm not a good speaker. I can't do this. But then he also tacks on, and I'm still not a good speaker since you've started speaking to me, meaning I don't like the way you've developed me. I'm still this way even now because you haven't 
fixed me, right? Moses, Moses is passively, aggressively saying, God, this is your fault. Like, I'm not eloquent. I wasn't in the past, and I'm not even right now. You've called me to this, and I'm still not eloquent. Look how God responds, though, number two. God's sovereignty enables our disabilities so that our inabilities become his capabilities. His sovereignty enables our disabilities so that our inabilities become his capabilities. God says, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Remember back in John chapter 9, the blind man that, that Jesus is going to heal. The disciples are like, hey, who, who sinned to make this guy blind? Did he do something? Did his parents do something? <clears throat> like, why does he have this disability? Jesus is like, nobody sinned to make him this way. I, you know, God made him this way. God made him this way for his glory. Made him blind for his glory. God doesn't reinforce Moses' abilities here. He doesn't say, Moses, you really are a good speaker. Quit saying that about yourself. Like, you are so eloquent. He doesn't do any of that, right? Doesn't reinforce, Moses, doesn't reinforce Moses's abilities, but instead reminds him that he is with him. He downplays the natural ability and instead plays up the spiritual, the supernatural ability, right? He says, who made the mouth? Verse 12, now therefore go and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God shows Moses two things here that his excuse is irreverent. It's irreverent. How is it irreverent? God says, I'm the one that made that mouth that you're talking about. The mouth that you're complaining about, I'm the one who made it. He says, I'm the Lord of the deaf, those who can't listen well, right? So you're concerned about the people not listening. God says, I'm I'm the one who's Lord over the deaf. If they can't hear well, it's me. I'm the one who controls their listening ability. I give hearing. I'm the Lord of the mute. Those who can't speak well, I'm Lord of them too, and I give words when words are needed. God says, I made you exactly how I intended to make you for my purposes. The same is true for each of us. You are who you should be for him. Just think about that statement for a second, because all of us at some point or another are quick to highlight our inabilities, right? Somebody comes to us and, and calls us to something, and maybe we feel a prompting from God that, hey, hey, I want you to do this, and then we quickly fall back on how we're unable to do it, right? Like, like I, don't, I don't have the ability to do that. Man, God made you exactly how he wanted to make you. He made you with the abilities and the inabilities that you have. He made you exactly how he wanted to make you. You are as you should be for him. He also shows Moses that his excuse is irrelevant. So it's irreverent because he's detracting from how God made him. And it's also irrelevant because God will empower him to speak with what to say. He says, I'm going to give you the words to say. I'm going to be your mouth for you. Look how he says this to Jeremiah when Jeremiah poses a similar excuse for not wanting to do what God's called him to. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. Now the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I'm only a youth, for to all to whom I send you shall go, and whatever I command you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Notice that in the context, a verse that we use so often for the sanctity of life, right? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
which shows that there was life in the womb before that life came out of the womb, right? Like God's intricately designing each and every person for specific purposes, right? He's telling Jeremiah, I knew you in the womb. I formed you how I wanted to form you for this task. We all can claim that. Whatever God's calling us to, he's made us exactly how he wants to make us for that task. When we focus on the I, we will certainly be prone to see the disabilities within us. We must focus on the I am. God expects us to glorify him with our, both our abilities and our disabilities. Our personal limitations do not limit his ability to bring glory to himself. Lastly, number three, we opt for obedience to God. We opt for obedience to God because that's really what it boils down to here. At the end of this conversation, we really get to see the crux of the matter. We really get to see what's at issue here. God's answered every excuse. Verse 12, go, I'll be your mouth. I'll teach you what you shall speak. Verse 13, but he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. You ever, you ever dialogued with somebody before? Maybe you're asking them to do something for you and they just keep giving you excuses. And if you've done your homework, you have answers for those excuses, right? So you start saying like, nah, that's not true. We can definitely do that. That's not gonna be an issue, right? And then it just finally comes down to like, I just really don't wanna do it right? Like I'm trying to make up excuses, but what it really boils down to is I just don't want to do it. And that's what excuse number five is, is here. It's a lack of responsibility. What if I just don't want to do it, God? What if I just don't want to do what you're asking me to do? Well, we see where that leads. Number one, our disobedience will make God angry eventually. It will make God angry eventually. It says verse 14, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. We have no indication up to this point that the Lord was angry. Moses is the one who wrote this book, right? So God does something here to clue Moses in that he's angry because Moses would write about it years later, right? We're having this conversation. Me and God are talking. This is how it's going. And then verse 14, and then God got angry at me, right? Like, like, like God sees through the excuses and he gets angry at me, right? He's, he's a God that, that God will remind Moses in Exodus 32, I'm slow to anger, but the slow to anger implies there's anger that can come, right, if we don't obey him. There's anger that's expressed here. Like, like you're, because here's the thing, again, it's not about whether the task will be successful or not. It's whether Moses believes God. That's what God's angry about. That's what he's frustrated about. That's what he's expressing here. You're not believing me. You're not trusting me. The anger of the Lord kindled against Moses. But then we see God's grace coupled with that anger, right? Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Don't miss this. Behold, he's already coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him. And then he goes on to describe how Aaron's going to be used. Our disobedience makes God angry eventually. But number two, our disobedience is providentially planned for as well. Even our disobedience can't mess up God's plans. God's willing to answer all the concerns, all the objections, but the longer the conversation goes, the more obvious it becomes that Moses just doesn't want to go. And then Moses runs out of excuses. He reveals the true issue at hand. He just wants to pass the responsibility to someone else. But even in his anger, God remains gracious and patient because here's what God says. I already planned for Aaron to come. I've already got your support system on the way. 
right? This isn't God reacting and saying, good grief, Moses, I can't get you to do this. What if I get Aaron? What if we go ask Aaron to come help you? Will you go then? No, this is God saying, hey, you're going to need a helper. I, I get that. I've already got Aaron on the way. Like Aaron's almost here, right? Like Aaron's almost here. Remember in um, Matthew chapter six, when, when we're told that God anticipates and knows our needs before we even ask for them. Before we even ask for them. Let's just imagine that Moses stops here and is like, all right, God, I'll do this, but I'm going to need some help. I, I, I want to ask you for some help. God's like, yeah, I already got Aaron on the way. Like he's almost here. I knew you were going to ask for that. I knew you were going to need that. I've already prompted Aaron to come. Now, why is Aaron coming? Probably because what we're going to find out, the Pharaoh's already dead, right? The Pharaoh that wanted to kill him is dead. Everybody that wanted to kill Moses is dead now. Now's the time to come home to be with your family. So Aaron's probably coming to get him thinking, hey, I'm going to go get Moses because he's been away, but he can come back because it's safe now. Aaron probably doesn't even know what he's about to get called to, but God's like, I already got Aaron on the way. He's going to come and he's going to be a part of this plan too. That's God's providence. That's his goodness to us. When we're rebelling and being disobedient, he's still working for our good and providentially planning for our disobedience. Here's the application for us today. It's a question, well, it's a statement with a question tied to it. Because it really, the the hinge point here on, on this sermon for us to walk away from is to really evaluate our obedience to God. Because every single one of us is great probably at making excuses for why we don't or why we won't, right? Are we being obedient to God? But here's the thing. Or here's the, let's just review these lack of, or his excuses real quick. Lack of credentials, who am I? Lack of knowledge, who are you? Lack of success, what if no one listens? Lack of capability, what if I can't do it? Lack of responsibility, what if I don't want to do it? Comes down to, will Moses be obedient, right? And here's what obedience looks like. Obedience to God is more than just doing what God says, It is partnering with God in what he says, meaning we believe what he says, we desire what he says, and then we do what he says because he is God and good. Do I believe this way? Do I obey this way? This is what it looks like to obey God. It's not just doing what he says. And this is where, for, for our youth, for our kids. This is where it goes from being your parents' faith to being your faith, right? Because your parents can tell you what to do, and they can tell you exactly what God tells you to do too. They can say, God says we can't do this. God says we can do this. God says we are going to go to church. God says we're not going to do things this way. We're going to do things this way. This is what God tells us to do. And you can obey God while you're living in your parents' house by doing exactly what they tell you God says to do. But that's not obedience to God. Just doing what he says is not the type of obedience that God is calling us to. God wants us to partner with what he says. Not just do what he says, but to partner with him in what he says. And what do we mean by that? We mean believing what he says, desiring what he says, and then doing what he says because we believe he is God and he is good. Meaning, I want your way. I'm not going to just do it your way. I want it your way. That's a sign of true biblical faith. That's a sign of true biblical faith. When we look at God and we say, I want it your way. I'm not going to just do it your way because I feel like if I don't, you're going to get angry at me and and I'm going to get punished for it. No, I want it your way. I'd ask that for all of us today. Are we believing and obeying God that way?
Do we want it his way? Do we believe him enough? Because that's what Moses was being called to. Hey, do this task, Moses. And it wasn't about whether the task was going to be successful or not. It was about would Moses believe that God would be successful through him to accomplish that task. We need to obey God too, but we need to obey him more than just doing what he says, partnering with him in it. Believing him, desiring what he says, and then doing it because we believe he's God and he's good. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We do praise you and thank you for your goodness. We thank you for being God. We thank you for being a God who is gracious and slow to anger when we disobey you. We thank you for being a God who has provided ample proof and validation that your message is true. God, give us the grace to believe it today, to believe it when we question it, to believe it when we're tempted to doubt you, when we're tempted to look to ourselves and our own inabilities and and our own disabilities and to think that we can't do and we can't be obedient, that we're not capable of it. Lord, help us to see that you go with us. Help us to see that you don't call us to things that you don't also go with us to accomplish. Lord, help us to all obey you in such a way where we partner with you in what you've said to us. We believe it, we desire it, and we do it because we're submitted to you as God. And we believe you to be good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.